0: All right, y'all. The uh, the outlines are coming around, so hopefully I have enough. If Daniel is sparing with his with his gift giving. All right. Well, let me um, let me go ahead and open up with prayer, and then we will continue uh, our talks about Augustine. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. We glorify and magnify your name for you are the one who has established and builds and comforts and strengthens your church. Lord, as we look down through church history in this class, uh, we see the great things that you have done, and Lord, we look forward to the great things that we know you will do and continue to work out as you bring your glorious plan of redemption, which you have decreed before the world was founded as you bring that plan uh, to its glorious conclusion, uh, when we will join you in the new heavens and the new earth to glorify and enjoy you forever. And so, Lord, we pray that as we study these things, that it would not be uh, mere bare information, but that you would uh, edify and strengthen us through it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are continuing uh, from last time, our discussion about... Saint Augustine of Hippo. Uh, we'll be talking about him for at least this week and next week, and I think the week after. So, uh, so it'll be four classes, at least. Uh, I think. As I was studying uh, for this class, I realized that we could spend an entire year on Augustine. I think easily. Uh, a very, very, uh, richly gifted and blessed and uh, individual that contributed much to the church. And so um, I I won't have time, unfortunately, really to uh, review his life. If you want to uh, review that or hear that for the first time, I would recommend going to Sermon Audio and listening to Pastor Mike's uh, lesson on that last time. I will just ask if anybody remembers uh, Augustine's dates, just off the top of their head. 354. To 430. And so where does that place him in uh, regards to the, to the history of the church that we've discussed so far? Well, it's uh, after the Council of Nicaea, uh, when he was born, before the Council of what happened in 381? Constantinople. And then he died one year before uh, the Council of Ephesus in 431. So he is in the middle of these uh, formulations of these ecumen- ecumenical councils and creeds. And uh, so he is uh, historically situated in a very important time in the church. Now, just to give you a little bit of an overview of the theological significance of Augustine, I just want to quote a few things to you from several different writers. Um, from the Schaff Herzog uh, Dictionary or Encyclopedia of church history uh, this is what one writer said Augustine is practically the father of all western Christianity after his time which includes us his writings have continued to exert such an influence as no other father before or since has ever attained. Now uh, this encyclopedia was written uh, after Luther, after Calvin after Edwards, I don't know the theological bent of this particular contributor of this of this uh, encyclopedia But, uh, I mean, you you see the significance right there. No other father before or since has ever retained the influence that Augustine has. A more modern writer, a writer who's still living, Richard Gamble, uh, says this. Augustine was the preeminent father of the Western church. Few throughout history rival his influence on it, as well as on philosophy, theology, and the culture at large. His understanding and development of Christian truth, coupled with the breadth of his interest in literary productions... Surpass all who preceded him. And then finally, the great uh, Princetonian B.B. Warfield says this: that Augustine not merely created an epoch in the history of the church, but has determined the course of its history in the West up to the present day. And so those are those are no small uh, accolades of Augustine's influence in theology and in Christian thought. Now, uh, I just want to go over, you can see there in your outline, uh, several areas of Augustine's theological contributions. We are talking about his theology today. Uh, Next time we'll be talking about Augustine's controversies. Now, hopefully it's clear by now that it's difficult to speak about theological development in church history without also mentioning controversies. And so I will try to do that uh, this class so that I can save uh, for myself. Uh, some of the material for next time. And so I'll try to speak about uh, Augustine's theology without a whole lot of reference to to his controversies uh, that he dealt with. Um, I, I think I'll say this by way of preface. Uh, Augustine, one of the things that makes him so significant is the fact that he was really uh, one of the first and really the first great systematizer of of the Christian faith. I think I have that. Yeah, you can see that in your outline there. Uh, What do I mean by this, that Augustine was really the first great systematizer of the Christian faith? Uh, Some of you who study theology may hear the phrase systematic theology uh, occasionally. Uh, I teach a class at our school here at Providence on systematic theology. It's called Christian Doctrine so that I don't uh, scare the students. But uh, that's, that's what this class is, or that class, is systematic theology. And what systematic theology is, is it is an attempt to bring all of the uh, theological data, for lack of a better word, of the, of the scriptures, of the inspired, revealed truth of God and his work into a coherent, logical system and whole. And the reason why we do this is because God is one. His mind is one. Uh, he himself is the truth, and therefore that truth is one. Uh, and if that's the case, then all truth, just by its very nature, can be uh, put into a logical framework. We can, we can put the doctrines of Scripture uh, into their relationships uh, with one another. And so just to give an example, uh, when we study Christology and when we study how uh, Jesus Christ, being one person, two natures, the God-man, uh, that's not just a doctrine that sits in isolation but rather it's it's a doctrine that has significance uh, for all other doctrines, especially when we think about uh, the significance that his one person two natures has for our redemption for our salvation for the atonement that Jesus Christ provides as the God man and so all doctrine affects all other doctrine. John Frame said this about Augustine. He said, Augustine is the, and he puts this in quotes, consolidator. Augustine is the consolidator. He continues, he says, he takes the gains of the Trinitarian controversy and rethinks the whole range of Christian theology in the light of that reform. That work required a thinker of great knowledge and intellectual genius. And Augustine certainly possessed those qualifications. He consummates the work of all the church fathers, bringing their best insights into a comprehensive system. Okay, so that's, uh, that's what Augustine, by God's providence, and us looking on him in hindsight, that's what uh, Augustine was put on earth for, uh, to take all the scattered insights of what we've studied in ancient church history and bring them into a systematic whole. And so, uh, being a man who dealt widely with virtually every area of Christian theology, not to mention uh, philosophy, uh, it'll be, it is very difficult to speak of Augustine's theolo- theological contributions. In fact, as I was studying this, this was probably the most difficult lesson for me to prepare because there's just so much material. Uh, I think I'll mention this later, but Augustine wrote, as far as we know, 130 some odd books, uh, many of which are quite large, uh, and are are on a wide range of topics. And so it's just really difficult to consolidate his importance into just a few points to speak about for 45 minutes to an hour, but be that as it may, I will try to do that now and really boil down, uh, his contributions to to just a, a few high points here organized. As you can see in your outline, according to, uh, three theological topics That is, and I'll explain these, uh, that is theology proper, soteriology, and ecclesiology. Now, do I have uh, any, I have a couple of Providence students here. Would any of my Providence students like to define those terms for us? Theology proper, soteriology, and ecclesiology. What do those terms mean? It's okay if not. I know you guys are shy. I have to actually get my students at Providence to talk. It's It's a weird problem. So, theology proper is the study of God himself. Uh, We speak of all of theology as really any study of what the Bible teaches, but theology proper is the study of God himself. Soteriology is the study of salvation, and ecclesiology is uh, the study of the church. And Augustine contributed very uh, influentially to each of these uh, areas, and so uh, I want to move on now into uh, looking at Augustine's contributions to theology proper, the study of God himself. Uh, but before we get into that, anybody have any questions or comments? Feel free to, to raise your hand, as always. Uh, that's that's very appropriate if you have any questions or anything you'd like to say. Now, uh, what did Augustine contribute to theology proper? Uh, what we just read from Frame a moment ago is that, that Augustine took the Trinitarian doctrine that he had received uh, from the Nicene Fathers and really uh, brought it into, into relation to all the rest of Christian theology. And so Augustine, uh, as we would expect, was an ardent defender and advancer of the doctrine of the Trinity that had been handed to him from Nicaea and uh, from Constantinople. Augustine rejected uh, utterly any kind of subordinationism. Now, subordinationism, again, is that idea, that, that, that teaching that says that uh, specifically uh, the Son and the Spirit are in some way inferior, uh, subsumed under the Father, whether by uh, authority or uh, in essence, in being. Uh, he rejected all forms of that, all members of the Trinity— in Augustine's thinking, rightly, biblically, uh, are co-equal, co-eternal. In fact, Augustine uh, went so far as to say, again rightly, that uh, the triune God is of singular mind and will. One mind and God, one will, shared uh, entirely by all three persons now what 's more interesting about augustine 's theology proper is how he advanced thinking regarding the Trinity Trinitarian doctrine in particular and specifically what, what I found most interesting is uh, that Augustine offered a particular analogy of the trinity he was he was very hard pressed to make this uh, what he called uh, an ineffable mystery of the Trinity. Uh, comprehensible to the people, understandable. And so he offered a particular analogy of the Trinity that I find uh, quite helpful. Now, I, I will preface this by saying uh, we have to be very careful with analogies of the Trinity. Uh, why is that? Why do I have to be careful with with making analogies of the Trinity?
1: heresies
0: Yes. In, in fact... I would argue that really all analogies lead to some form of error when you, when you, when it comes to the Trinity. What are some common analogies of the Trinity? Like what are some really like street level? Yeah. Yes, and what's the problem with that? It's <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and and I I did put in my notes here that, I, that we really should show that video. <laughs> um we, we don't have the capability. There's a video on YouTube. Yep. Um I don't I don't know what the name of it is, but it, it's funny. I won't get into it. Uh, but yes, so uh, the three states of water, the problem with that is that uh, it can only be one state at a time, which, as Pastor Mike said, is modalism. Uh, God being the Father at one point, but not the Son and the Spirit, and then the Son, then the Spirit, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, wearing different masks. Uh, well, Augustine actually comes up with an analogy that I think is, is really one of the most helpful uh, as long as you take it as an analogy, okay. The reason why it's, this is so difficult is because God is unique, right? There's there's nothing in creation uh, with which He can be compared. Uh, he is utterly unique. But Augustine gave this analogy. In his thinking, he said, "Well, human beings are made in the image of God. Therefore, their constitution must in some way mirror God's." Uh, triunity. And Augustine was thinking, well, human beings are, are in their constitution, they have a memory, they have an intellect, and they have a will. A memory, an intellect, and a will. Now this is going to get a little philosophical, so just bear with me. Memory, intellect, and will. In human beings, the memory is where Impressions, Augustine said, are stored, impressions of, of data that we receive from the outside world. That's where those things are stored. The intellect is where those impressions are understood and made sense of. And the will is where those memories and that understanding, that intellect, is uh, put into action. We could, we could, Augustine would say, that is where those impressions are loved. Now, for Augustine, uh, memory, intellect, and will are distinct, yet all part of the human mind, right? And so you can see how he viewed that as really what is most analogous to uh, the triune nature of God, where we have three distinct persons uh, of one essence, you can think of the human mind as three distinct faculties, and yet the mind is of of is, is one thing. It's not three things. Does that make sense? Uh, that that was that was Augustine's uh, contribution. He had many contributions to theology proper, but but as I was looking at it, that was really what was the most interesting to me. Uh, I, I don't think this was really advanced upon really until Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had another analogy about. Um, or or what no actually i think he followed in in augustine's footsteps explicitly here he did he didn't have the the sunlight and heat analogy i'm i'm not sure i think he followed exactly in augustine's footsteps here um, before we move to soteriology any questions about that again we are we are really just scratching the surface here just hitting some highlights okay let's talk about augustine's contributions to uh Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Now, up to this point in church history, as we've looked at the controversies, as we've looked at the councils and the creeds, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, discussion, at least at length, earnest dealings with uh, the, the precise mechanism of how a man is saved. Uh, most of the controversies have been about Trinitarian doctrine, the nature of God, the nature of Christ and the Spirit. But the creeds, as we read them, uh, don't really talk about how a man is saved. Uh, the Apostles and Nicene Creed say nothing of Christian duty. Uh, it's just a, a bare statement of doctrine. There's no statement about uh, the Christians, the, a man's duty to believe these things. It's just a statement that we believe them. Now, this isn't a criticism. Uh, These are crucially important matters, obviously. But to speak of being saved begs the question of by whom and how. And so the creeds answer the by whom question. Augustine is going to answer the how question. Now, with Augustine's soteriology, I'm just going to sum this this up in two phrases. Uh, First of all, man's utter inability And God's absolute sovereignty. That's really kind of the dual, the the two-sided coin of Augustine's dealing with the doctrine of salvation, man's utter inability and God's absolute sovereignty. Now, with regard to man's utter inability, Augustine was really the first great, again, he was a systematizer. He was the great articulator of and defender of the doctrine of original sin. Now, that is not to say that Augustine Invented the doctrine of original sin as uh, some of the more Pelagian stripe, uh, that'll make sense, more next week would accuse, but rather uh, because of the various controversies that Augustine found himself uh, engaged in, uh, he more than really anybody who came after him uh, had to deal with this doctrine of original Sin and articulate it according to what the Bible teaches. Now, Augustine taught that all men, uh, every human being, are in—they are in Adam. They're in Adam. Now, for Augustine, this didn't just mean federally, just by by way of of representation. He certainly believed that, but he actually went a step further and said that all men. Uh, are in Adam siminally, organically. And because all people have their uh, have Adam as their head, as their root, as their representative, they receive from Adam a corrupted nature wherein their whole being, uh, body, soul, mind, will, heart, is, apart from grace, helplessly bent toward evil. That's what Augustine taught. And he gets this uh, from Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered, entered the world, and death through sin, and, and thus death spread to all men, and our translations say, because all sinned, uh, Augustine actually translated it, uh, through one man in whom all sinned. And so for Augustine, all people were in Adam uh, according to human nature and therefore sinned in Adam. Now, moving on from this, uh, Augustine wrote two important books in dealing with this topic. Um, First of all, the book On the Free Choice of the Will, and then secondly, on original sin. And so in, in kind of putting together Augustine's soteriology here, I want to deal with, uh, with some of the things that he taught through these books. Now, do we, as Presbyterians, as Reformed Presbyterians, believe in free will? Yes, yes we do. Uh, now, that begs the question... What do we mean by free will? What do we mean by free will? Well, with Augustine, um, he was, again, hard pressed to define what free will means. There were those, again, we'll talk about this more next time, but there were those in his day who were teaching that man was born morally neutral, that man was born uh, a blank slate in the sense that they are just absolutely free to do, to do good, to do evil. It's totally up to them. It's within their nature to do good. Now, for Augustine, uh, he did not deny free will. He affirmed it, rather. But what he said is that man's will is free to do whatever it wants to do. Man's will is determined by his nature. And so, every person is free to do precisely whatever they want to do. Uh, now, the bad news is that man is totally depraved, meaning that every part of his nature is touched and corrupted by sin, uh, including, especially including the desires Uh, And so therefore, fallen man by his will, which is free, by the way, an an unfree will is is really a contradiction. Uh, In order for a will to be a will, it must be free. But we must properly understand it within the makeup of the human nature. A will is determined by desires. And so therefore, uh, a fallen man can only do what by his nature he wants to do. And for Augustine, apart from a generation, apart from the sovereign grace of God, re- renewing man's will, renewing his nature, renewing his desires, man is, uh, all he wants to do is sin. And therefore, all he can do is sin. Now, Augustine summed this up, you can see in your outline there, in four Latin phrases uh, describing what Thomas Boston calls the fourfold state of man. And I'll just go through the, each of these briefly. You have there uh, the pre-fall condition of man, and you see the Latin phrase there, posa picare, which means possible to sin. In the pre-fall condition, it was possible for man to sin, obviously, because he did. Then you have the post-fall unregenerate condition, which is pasa non posse non picare, it's not possible not to sin. And then you have the regenerate state, which is pasa non pecare. What does that mean? It's possible not to sin. And then you have uh, the glorified state, uh, which wonderfully is uh, non passa pecare, which means what? It's not possible to sin. That was uh, Augustine's soteriological anthropology, his understanding of, of human nature as it relates to to his will. And so uh, since all men by nature from Adam are in a state of it's not possible not to sin, then they must receive uh, grace from God, which leads us to our next point here, Uh, God's absolute sovereignty, God's absolute sovereignty and salvation. Man is unable, according to Augustine and the Bible, to save himself in any way whatsoever. And what makes it worse is that man In his fallen unregenerate state, does not even want to be saved. He doesn't want it. And so God Himself must reach down uh, and pluck man up from the fire. And so uh, therefore Augustine was was insistent. If man is to be saved, he must be saved sovereignly, without any contribution on on man's part. Uh, No initiation on man's part, no cooperation. Now, of course, there is, uh, there is a working, walking in step with the Spirit with regards to sanctification, but when we're talking about uh, regeneration, uh, the renewing of, of man's heart, there's, there's nothing man can do to move himself uh, even in that direction. And so Augustine articulated uh, what we would call the reform view of election and reprobation. Again, I say articulated, not invented because he's taking the the biblical data here and he's expositing it in a faithful way. Uh, If it is true that uh, out of the fallen mass of humanity, uh, God chooses some to be saved and certainly saves them, then uh, that's election. Then the other side of the coin must be true as well. That is, those who are not chosen to salvation, those whom God does not uh, will to redeem, are uh, left in their sins are passed over uh, to, to suffer the consequences of their sins which is eternal condemnation and so for Augustine uh, predestination unto life was an active working of God uh, to renew the heart of man and to bring him into a state, uh, into a, a state of salvation whereas uh, foreordination to condemnation was merely God leaving men to their sins, passing them over. And thereby, it's is no less a certain consignment to condemnation in Augustine's mind. But it is kind of a different mechanism there, which is reflected, uh, I think we talked about this when we looked at Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, chapter 3, chapter 10, I can't remember. But it uses the same language. I mean, they're drawing from Augustine here. Now, uh, because of Augustine's view of God's sovereignty and salvation, those whom he wills to save will certainly be saved. This develops into Augustine's, his, another major contribution is his doctrine of perseverance. Okay? Uh, those who are saved by God will persevere to the end. Uh, they may uh, fall into God's fatherly displeasure. They may for a time drift away, but they will finally uh, persevere to the end. They will not finally fall away. Now, it was these aspects of Augustine's theology that triumphed in the Reformation. I'm going to talk a little bit later about uh, the um, the battle between Augustine's soteriology and his ecclesiology during the Reformation. But his soteriological, his his doctrine of salvation contributions to theology is what the Reformation uh, really drew upon. Uh, Luther, Calvin, Bullinger, Butzer. all of them were recovering an Augustinian soteriology. In fact, B.B. Warfield in reflecting upon this said, it was Augustine who gave us the Reformation. Now granted, it, it came a thousand years later, but he says it was Augustine who gave us the Reformation. But Because uh, no mere man is perfect. Uh, Certainly Augustine was not perfect. There's still uh, a ways to go for Augustine's soteriology to be refined into uh, the doctrine of salvation that we enjoy and study today. Uh, Where Augustine's soteriology was deficient in my estimation, was his relationship that he placed between justification and sanctification. Let me explain what I mean by this. Uh, In fact, I'll just put it this way. Let let me ask you a question and see if you can detect uh, what is wrong with this statement or if there's anything wrong. This is something, this is a direct quote from Augustine. He says, uh, what else does the phrase being justified mean than being made righteous? Is there anything wrong with that statement? And if so, what is there? Yes. Um he said in such
1: a way that it in the uh, that allow an option of the table to be
0: declared to righteousness. Yes. Yes. You repeat
1: it and shouldn't hear
0: it. You want to repeat it, brother? Yes, yeah, so when, when I say
1: uh what does justification to be, but to be made righteous, I didn't leave on the table the the the, the option. In other words, I, I gutted inflection; it made it totally
0: infusion. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure Augustine went that far, but that's what it would become uh, in, in Roman Catholic theology. Yes, he, he says that justification means being made righteous. For Augustine, justification was not a declarative legal act from God. Uh, For Augustine, a man is justified. I want to be very careful here. Because uh, I believe Augustine had the gospel. Um, But this is going to sound really bad. Uh, I actually wrote a paper on this in seminary. And I, I took a class on Augustine. For Augustine, man is justified by his works. But those works are entirely and utterly the product of God's grace at work uh, in the heart of man. Does that make sense? Uh, For Augustine, justification is a transformative act of God rather than a declarative act. And so, Augustine really confuses justification and sanctification. Again, I I absolutely believe that he had the gospel. Uh, This was an error. Uh, But he... but. Again, what saves him, and, and Calvin even talks about this in his Institutes, what saves Augustine is the fact that he was insistent that everything man has uh, that is good comes from the grace of God. Uh, there's, there's nothing, even the good works that man does by which he is is transformed and, and finally justified is, uh, is not of himself. It's not. Now, uh, with regard to justification and sanctification, What what the Reformation had to clarify is the fact that justification and sanctification are distinct. They are inseparable, but they are distinct acts of God. Justification being uh, a declarative act. By justification, uh, the Bible says one is reckoned righteous. He is declared righteous. He is acquitted. He's not made righteous. You are made righteous by sanctification, not by justification. They're distinct but inseparable realities. And so this is what Roman Catholicism would latch on to. They would latch on to this, this really a slip up in my estimation, as much as I revere Augustine, as much as he's a a greater man than I will ever hope to be, he'll be closer, to quote Wesley, closer to the throne of grace than I could ever hope to be uh, in heaven. I think this was a slip up and and Rome would, would latch on to this. They would say, look, this is what Augustine taught. Uh, justification is a transformative act. And, and as we know, Rome developed that into a, an entirely works-based salvation. Uh, just to, to end this section here, Luther and Calvin actually explicitly and consciously depart. Ju- just to show you that I'm not, I don't think I'm making this up, this uh, this belief that Augustine was in error here. Uh, Luther and Calvin would explicitly depart from Augustine uh 11, 1200 years later. Here's what Calvin says when he's talking about uh, Augustine's view of justification. He says, Augustine's view, or at any rate his manner of stating it. Now, you can see Calvin's reverence for Augustine here. Augustine's view, or at any rate his manner of stating it, we must not entirely accept. For even though he admir- admirably deprives man of all credit for righteousness and transfers it to God's grace, he still subsumes grace under-sanctification by which we are reborn in newness of life through the Spirit. And so Calvin there is saying that, that Augustine, he sees it, Augustine really melded and confused justification and sanctification. Any questions about that before we move on to uh, ecclesiology? Yes, sir. This is
1: maybe not exactly really what you just talked about. If we, if we believe in a firm justification to be a declared. How do we defend against statements that justification is by faith? If it's simply a declarative act, how can it be said from Scripture that it be by faith? Justification
0: is by faith. I don't think I'm sure what you're asking. Are you are you asking, you know, some people say, well, isn't faith a work? Is that is that kind of well, what you're getting at? They'll,
1: they'll distinguish between something being declared, if a person is declared righteous. Then what
0: part has faith with it? Well, faith is, is the, the means, the, the means by which one is justified. It's not the cause of justification. Christ's righteousness is the cause of our yeah. justification. Uh, faith is the means. Uh, or you, you. I
1: think it's important to remember God's the one making the declaration, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Man's one exercising faith. Not God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. God doesn't. He. he the Spirit of God works faith in us. Right, right. It, doesn't, it doesn't exercise faith for us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's the means whereby...
1: I'm just simply yeah. going from the from the scriptural language, justified by faith, you know, um, somebody could argue that. I understand that, the word, that God works at all, you know, but uh, just because of the wording, you know, it works. It may it may be difficult sometimes to defend against that uh, hmm.
0: declaration, but it says it's by faith. Yeah, I don't I don't think they're contradictory. Yeah, okay. Um. I mean I mean the very the very just linguistically speaking the very word, uh to justify the Greek word. I mean it it, it is a it is a legal word. It's a, it's a courtroom word. Yeah. It's uh, possible. Sure, yeah. Brian, do you have
1: Following uh, Paul and Jeff's comment there there are some believe that we're eternally justified and then even the critical baptists they don't they, they don't believe, at least some of them don't, the in justification by faith, but they hang up that faith as a deeds.
0: Yeah. I think that, that, that would be bonafide fide hyper Calvinism, I think. Um yeah, the yeah, I'm, I've never even heard of that. Uh, cool. Yeah. Um, in your Augustine class, did you did you ever get to read or study any of his retractions? Uh, we we kind of piecemealed them. I've not read, and
1: I'm curious if Augustine ever
0: modified his view of justification in his retractions. That's an interesting question. I don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, just for everyone else in here, Augustine did. Uh, later on in his life write write a a book of retractions wherein he's kind of <laughs> who has time to do this? <laughs> to look back at his hundred and thirty some odd books and and kind of go comb through them again and say where where was I wrong or, or whatever and then he issued retractions on certain things. And we did talk about them. We weren't required to read them. Um but but I remember in the in a lecture notes that we did kind of piecemeal some of them and look at look at some of them. But I'll have to look at that. All right, uh, moving on here. I've got about 15 minutes or so. Uh, just look at Augustine's uh, ecclesiology here. Now, as I said a moment ago, uh, no theologian is perfect. Uh, hopefully you all know that. Uh, if, if you're looking for the perfect theologian, then you're wasting your time, okay? With Augustine's ecclesiology, his again, his doctrine of the church, this is where uh, we, we really see Augustine, I'm trying to come up with the right word here. Augustine kind of goes off the rails on some points here, in, in my view. Uh, but before we get into those points, I want to talk about some ways that Augustine's ecclesiology was very helpful. It was very good. Uh, you can see there in your outline, uh, it's from Augustine that we really get the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. Now, that's not to say that there are two churches, okay? There's one church, one holy Catholic apostolic church. And yet there are, there are different vantage points from which we can look at the one church, uh, namely uh, the visible and the invisible. We'll talk about this more next time, but there was a group of people uh, called Donatists who viewed the church in Augustine's time as uh, observably and exclusively holy In conduct and doctrine. Uh, To put it a a little bit more uh, clearly, the Donatists argued that no, no defector, no heretic, no apostate, no traitor uh, could ever belong in the Church of Jesus Christ. And in fact, during those times of persecution. Uh, the Donatists, if if somebody defected from the faith from the faith because of persecution, they would not. They were not permitted to to, to join the church in this movement. They were they were never allowed back in. Uh, even if they repented, even if they uh, they renounced all all their errors, they were not allowed back in. And so the Donatists were really a a schismatic, uh, separatist movement with which Augustine had to deal very severely, uh, and rightly so. And, and to respond to these people, Augustine answered with uh, a distinction between the visible and the invisible church. He says that the, the, the visible church, that is the church that literally we can see. Uh, I can look out and see all of you later on when we're in worship. I can, I can see all of you. Uh, the church that exists on earth now, the gathering of God's people uh, and their children, is a mixed body. Augustine called it a, uh, in Latin, a corpus per mixtum, a mixed body. Uh, in other words, the visible church is made up of both believers and unbelievers. Uh, no church, as far as I'm aware, I highly doubt, maybe there's, uh, I'm sure it's possible. But most of the time when you walk into a church, It's not going to be made up of 100% believers, truly regenerate, born-again Christians, right? Uh, Now, you might ask, well, uh, what's the big deal here? Well, again, Augustine's dealing with a controversy here. There are those who are literally fracturing the church, uh, destroying the unity of the church because they want to maintain some pipe dream of, of absolute purity. And Augustine was uh, was having none of it. Now he did say the invisible church—that is, uh, that uh, that body of people known only to God, who are truly regenerate, elect, saved by Christ—which we can't see. You know, we don't have a physical mark on us when we become regenerate. We can't physically, visibly discern. that aspect of the church, that vantage point by which you look at the church, the invisible church, is uh, unmixed. It's made up only of believers, Christians. Now, Augustine would say that the invisible and and the visible church is holy. Uh, the visible church, obviously, because it's it's only it's only Christians, only believers, only the elect. But he says that the visible church is also holy, not because contra the Donatists. Uh, there's some kind of of perfection of of morals and of doctrine within the physical body. But rather, the visible church is holy along with the invisible church uh, because it is set apart by Christ. It is the body of Christ. It is uh, the body which he instituted. And so he set them apart to himself, albeit it is a mixed company. Now, Uh, That's where Augustine's ecclesiology is helpful. Now, there's a couple of ways where Augustine's ecclesiology was uh, not so good, and I'll just highlight a couple of these things here. Uh, First of all, with regard to church authority, uh, I was looking over some of my notes from the Augustine class years ago and just reading some things. It's it's kind of hard to get a clear answer on this, but it appeared to me that uh, Augustine taught a version of the infallibility of the church in its teaching and dogmatic function. That the church, led by the Spirit of God, when it makes, not, not just when it speaks, just whenever, but when it speaks in terms of, Augustine was thinking in terms of the creeds, the councils, uh, the church speaks infallibly. In fact, the councils in which Augustine found himself directly in the middle, uh, the councils of the church are the primary agency of its infallible teaching power. Now, uh, while Augustine's doctrine here is not as strong as Rome would later on make it, especially when it talks about the the papal infallibility and things like that, uh, Augustine did give a little bit too much primacy in this regard, in this, this area of church authority to the Bishop of Rome. Uh, Augustine, in one of his sermons, says this. He's speaking about his controversy with Pelagius and the Pelagians, which we'll talk about again next time. He says this, Concerning this case with Pelagius, the reports of two councils were sent to the Apostolic See. Now, he's talking about the Bishop of Rome here, uh, which in Augustine's mind really was the direct descendant of Peter. The Apostolic See. The reports of two councils were sent to the Apostolic See. From there, replies came, the case is closed. And so, you know, he's appealing to church authority here uh, as he doesn't, again, he doesn't say it's infallible here, but he's, he's giving a strong, strong emphasis on uh, church authority here, especially as it's found in the Bishop of Rome. Now, while Augustine, I don't think, intended for it to go as far as it did in Roman Catholicism, uh, just as with his understanding of justification and sanctification, uh, Rome would latch onto this in the coming centuries, and it would intensify over the years into, uh, into what we have in the um, was the 1800s or was it before? I may be thinking of um, Immaculate Conception. I think that was the 1800s. but anyways, um, developing into papal infallibility, whatever the, whatever the Pope says, the Bishop of Rome says, ex cathedra from from the seat." Uh, is is infallible just as much as the scriptures are. That's what it would develop into, although uh, I don't think Augustine uh, meant this or intended this. Now, with the sacraments, this is the last thing we'll deal with here. Uh, In his controversy with the Donatist, one of the Donatist errors was that uh, they argued that because of their extreme views of, of church purity and holiness, uh, they would say that the administration of the sacraments, particularly baptism, depends upon the uh, depends upon the one ministering it. It Depends upon the the righteousness, the purity, the holiness of the one who is administering those sacraments. And so they would say that if you were uh, baptized by a minister who held to uh, you know either some error or was a defector from the faith and eventually came back, uh, your baptism is not valid. It's not a valid baptism. Again, this is just in keeping with their idea that nobody should be admitted to the church who doesn't meet their standards of uh, doctrinal and moral purity. And so Augustine, in response to this, uh, ended up saying that the sacraments uh, work, and this is a Latin phrase here. I don't, I should have put that in the outline. That's an important phrase. Uh, The sacraments work in Latin. Ex opera operato. Okay, I can spell that for you. It's E-X space O-P-E-R-A space O-P-E-R-A-T-O. Ex opera operato. Uh, What that means. Well, first of all, has anybody heard this phrase before? What is it? You say what it means? Ish
1: they,
0: they yes in, 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 the, in the operation in the working it is worked meaning that by the mere action of uh, partaking in the sacrament independent of of the faith of the recipient or the validity of the minister or the church the grace that is exhibited is actually imparted that's eventually what ex opera operato would uh, would come to mean that by the, the mere sacramental actions uh having water poured, having uh, partaking of bread and of wine. Uh, The grace, apart from anything else, the grace exhibited is actually given and imparted. Okay, so it's a very mechanistic view of the sacraments. Now again, it's difficult to tell. Augustine wrote so much and he did have retractions. It's difficult to tell how far Augustine took this but it, it is for sure that, that that ex opera operato understanding of the sacraments came from Augustine. And so, uh, for example, later on, uh, the Roman church would come to believe in what we call baptismal regeneration. Uh, that baptism actually affects regeneration in the one being baptized. Because it's, it's no longer at that point just a sign of regeneration. It's no longer just a pointer to regeneration, but it actually works it. Now, uh, I'll, I'll finish by saying this. This is why Warfield, he, he wrote a couple of um, articles on Augustine, uh, important articles. Uh, Warfield would say this in writing on Augustine. He said, the problem which Augustine bequeathed to the church for solution, again, talking about this ecclesiology, the problem which Augustine bequeathed to the church, gave to the church for solution, the church required a thousand years to solve. But even so, it is Augustine who gave us the Reformation. For the Reformation, inwardly considered, was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. That, for Warfield, is what the Reformation was. It was the, it was the triumph of Augustine's soteriology, his doctrine of grace, over Augustine's ecclesiology his doctrine of the church and of the sacraments on one side well, on, on both sides of the reformation you have people claiming Augustine Right? it wasn't like the, Re- the reformers said well, well we'll have Augustine and Rome said now we're not going to have anything about Augustine no uh, both sides claimed Augustine Rome claimed Augustine for the ways in which really Augustine kind of went sideways uh, the reformers claimed Augustine Uh, for the ways in which he was most clearly and biblically faithful with regard to the doctrine of salvation. Now, um, I'll I'll wrap up here, and then I'll I'll open up for some questions. We have a few minutes. Um, I want you to understand, again, that that we're only scratching the surface here. Uh, Augustine was a remarkably complex, voluminous theologian. He wrote very, very much, again, 132 books, uh, they're actually being translated into one full set, all of his works, by uh, New City Press, which is a, a Catholic uh, organization. But uh, since, I think, 1990, so for the past 34 years, they've been translating all of Augustine's 132 books. I think it's going to be like a 49-volume set. They only have 44 volumes now. So if you want that, uh, and if you have $3,300 laying around, yeah, it's, it's, actually, it's actually a gorgeous set. Uh, Trinity has, has a set. And it's, I mean, it's just really well-made, well-done, very, very readable. A lot of, a lot of Augustine's books are not, as they're translated, you know, a long time ago, just aren't very readable. But if you have, you know, three thousand dollars laying around, you can go buy that. But uh, I did bring a couple of books here. If you want to, uh, to be introduced to the thought of Augustine, I'm not sure what uh, Mike mentioned last time by way of recommendation. Uh, I would recommend uh, this biography. On Augustine by Peter Brown. It's a very, very good biography. It's kind of a standard. A um, little thick, you can see, but it's a, it's a good read. And then also I would highly recommend uh, Augustine's kind of his own biography. It's not, it's not a biography proper, but it's really his spiritual biography, uh, his confessions, probably his most well-known work. Um, this is a, a translation, a recent translation by John Ryan. Um, very good read. Uh, there's some really it's going to sound weird to say, and Sophia would probably roll her eyes at me, but there's some really exciting stuff in here. Um, in particular, I remember being struck by uh, book 10 and 11. Book 10 is on a philosophy of memory, uh, which you wouldn't expect to find in, in something like this, a philosophy of memory, and then book 11 is on time and eternity. Just really thrilling stuff. I mean, it's, I mean honestly, if, if philosophy and theology is something that you thrive on, uh, you will not be able to put this book down. Uh, it's really, really good, so I would recommend it to you. Uh, any any questions or comments at all? Yes. Just a comment, just uh, in terms of
1: the, the sacramental theology, seems to be tied to the um, church authority issue, right? If the church is has that ultimate authority, then its sacraments would operate that way. It just seems like that they, they would be
0: connected. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know if if Augustine ever made that connection. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'll have to buy the 44-volume set for $3,300 to see help. if he made that connection. Any other questions or comments at all? There's a, there's a free Libra box recording of the Confessions online. Yeah, you you can find, uh, you know, Augustine's Confessions should be in the public domain considering they were written 1,600 years ago. I think they fell out of copyright. Uh. Just, just know that that the free versions that you find, uh, they they may be difficult. Um, they may have a lot of these and thous and old vocabulary, and it, it may be the syntax might be a little bit weird. But it's, I mean, that's fine if that's if you don't want to spend the money, um, and you can you can listen to it as well. Any uh, anything else? All right. Well, let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll we'll move into worship here.